You're listening to a sermon podcast from Church of the Gates, where we desire for real people to meet the real Jesus and experience real change. We pray that God might use the next few minutes to draw you closer to him. Numbers, uh, we're going to be in the whole book of Numbers today, and I want to spend some time uh, walking through the book of Numbers. We are in our series, Every Book for All of Life, uh, where we are looking at one book uh, per Sunday uh, for 66 Sundays. And we're in, uh, last, the last time we were in here was November 20th, and we did Leviticus, and we uh, took, a break for, take a, took a break for Advent, and now we're back into our series, and we're going to start with the book of Numbers for the new year. Will you just bow your heads with me as we uh, dedicate this time the Lord, and we ask him to change us, that we would not just be passive, but that we would enter this time uh, desiring to be changed by the Lord this morning. God, we are grateful that you have given us a new year, and we know that it is your blessing and your goodness that causes this. That you, uh, Colossians says that in, in Jesus, all things hold together. God, that our hearts don't beat, our lungs don't fill with air, the earth does not rotate. God, without your say-so. And so we are here this morning, glad recipients of your grace and mercy for another day. Another day to pursue you, to worship you. And so God, we give you permission today and this year, God, to change us, to take parts of our hearts that are not yet yours, uh, to remove pride and arrogance and bitterness and anger uh, and uh, sexual morality and these other things that plague us. God, we, we, we pray that you would take them from us this year, that we might be more like your son more full of joy, more full uh, of who you are. So God, as we read your word today, would we be stirred to faithful following of you? Would we be stirred to run from sin? Would we reflect joyfully this morning on your goodness and your faithfulness to us in our times of faithlessness? God, we give this time to you for your glory and our joy. Amen. One of the most predictable parts of my day is when I'm getting ready for the day. One of the most predictable parts of my day is uh, I'm about to brush my teeth. I grab uh, my toothpaste, grab my toothbrush, and I squeeze my toothpaste thing. You know what comes out? Toothpaste. Every time. I can set my clock by it every time. It would be strange if I squeezed it and pizza came out or some other such thing. But when you squeeze this thing, something always comes out, and it's predictable. And it's not so unlike life for us. That when life presses in and squeezes us, when it's unexpected, or when life is disappointing, or when the unknown is in front of us, or we're hurt or full of sorrow, when life squeezes us, it's pretty predictable what comes out. Maybe it's addiction, coping mechanisms. Maybe you run to alcohol. Maybe you run to eating or to sexual addiction or spending money or, or you run to self-loathing or to self-pity or, or grumbling or bitterness and anger. My, my point is saying it's like, like, it's reliable that when the world squeezes us, usually the same thing comes out. These things in us that God is still working on that we have not yet given him. It's predictable. We ask the questions, who am I when life squeezes me? What streams from my heart? And who is God 
when I'm being squeezed? And where is he? So today I want to spend some time in the book uh, of Numbers. And so if you want to, if you want to hold on to a section, uh, grab, uh, grab chapters 11 through 14. We'll spend a lot of our time there. Uh, we'll spend a little bit of time in the front, a little bit of time in the back, but really want to focus in on, uh, on four or five chapters from 11 to 14 that really help kind of illustrate what the book of Numbers uh, shows us. And so, and normally, if, if you're new to the church, normally we take smaller chunks of scripture and don't try to bite off a whole book. But like, I just think there's a lot of value in us going book by book and trying to get a large overview. Because, you know, if you're starting your Bible reading today, we've done the first four books of the Bible for you. And so you can get a sense of, of what to expect over the next few Weeks. So we'll just, we'll get, get started with a little bit of background information on numbers and we'll dive right into, uh, dive right into the content. Who wrote the book of numbers? It's Moses. He wrote all of the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, what is the structure uh, of numbers? It goes like this. There's chapters one through 10, and that's preparation. Chapters 11 uh, through 14, that's grumbling. And then chapters 15, through the rest of the book, our punishment. And really the, the, center, the center portion of the book is where everything kind of hinges. Uh, the first 10 chapters kind of prepare the movement uh, into the promised land. The middle three or four chapters show the wheels falling off. And the last, I don't know, 20 some chapters or so show God disciplining his people in different ways. Why is numbers important for us this morning? Why is numbers important for us this morning? Numbers the book of Numbers reminds us that God's faithfulness isn't dependent on our faithfulness to him. That God's faithfulness to us is not dependent on our faithfulness to him. In other words, in other words what I'm saying is he is faithful by his character. And so his faithfulness, his love for us, his mercy towards us is not contingent on our obedience. It's not contingent on our goodness. That he decides to be faithful to us by his character. And Numbers illustrates that multiple times. His love, his graciousness, his, uh, his faithfulness to Israel. To kind of understand where we're at, we're following the story of Israel. Uh, they, they, they've left Egypt and they've now spent about a year of time at the foot of Mount Sinai where they've gotten the law uh, and there's a tabernacle. And last, the last book we looked at was Leviticus where God basically gave them away. When you understand Leviticus with all the laws and everything in about three or four weeks, when you start reading Leviticus in your plans, all these confusing laws, with the, 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 the preeminent theme of Leviticus is God makes a way for us to know him. And so we're picking up the story of Israel having just spent a year at the foot of Mount Sinai. And they've spent a year there worshiping the Lord. They've spent a year there getting, uh, getting information and building the tabernacle and becoming a nation. And Numbers chronicles what happens next after they leave Mount Sinai towards the promised land. This, is, this part's really important. This generation of Israelites, they've been, they're the generation that was in Egypt They've saw the 10 plagues. They've walked across the Red Sea that was split. They've watched Pharaoh's army be destroyed. They were led by fire and clouds. They've eaten uh, manna and quail that's been miraculously provided. They've been forgiven of their rebellion at the golden calf. They've been given God's law uh, so they can, they can stay in his presence. My point is saying this generation has seen some of the most miraculous works of God that, have, that, that we still even hear. They witnessed them. They witnessed God's strong arm of deliverance 
against Egypt. They witnessed God's grace and mercy in not destroying all of them as they worshiped the golden calf. Like, there's, I don't know if there's another generation that has more reason to trust God than this generation. Well, except for maybe the 500 or so who saw Jesus rise from the dead. Like, that's, I'm not discounting that. I'm more just saying, I, like, of a generation that has seen God's power, I don't know of one that has seen it over and over and over and over. And so that's the context we enter into the book of Numbers. We just remind ourselves that seeing doesn't always lead to believing. That seeing doesn't always lead to believing. And miracles don't always lead to deeper faith. So God prepares his people. This is the first kind of uh, first overview or the first section of the book of Numbers. It's the first 10 chapters. God prepares his people. And what is he preparing them for? Exodus 3.17 reminds us of where he's headed with his people. And I promise, this is God to the people of Israel, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, to the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and all the rest of the ites, to a land flowing with milk and honey. That this is where they're headed. And so they've been at the foot of Mount Sinai. And so the first 10 chapters of Numbers is preparing them for what is meant to be a journey to the promised land. And so uh, the, the first 10 chapters are punctuated by three, real, three ideas uh, where he trains them in purity, he trains them the priesthood, and he reminds them of his presence. And, and when we think of uh, the purity, basically what he's saying is, uh, you're going to be my people, you're going to be set aside, you're going to live differently because I'm your God. And so when other people see you, you will be distinct, you will worship me differently. To stay in my presence, you must be pure. And so uh, there's a bunch of, a bunch of more... Uh, iterations of, of what it looks like to be pure, uh, an emphasis on marriage and purity in the Israelites. And the takeaway here is this, that God's people are meant to be distinct. The people should look at God's people and they should look different than the prevailing culture. This idea that Christians should be relevant would be foreign to the Israelites, would be foreign to what God is asking them to do. That they should be distinct in every way in their marriages and their families and how they interact with money and how they interact with the poor and how they interact with the foreigner. All of that, that Israel should be distinct. God's people were to be so distinct that their obedience would grate against the prevailing culture. Then uh, he prepared them for purity. He reminded them of the priesthood. And so if you read Numbers in like six weeks, six or seven weeks, when it's in your Bible reading plan and the first two chapters are literally all Numbers, you kind of like hit this skid, and you're like, oh man, this is, let's skip these two. The first two chapters set up chapters four through six, or three through four. They count all the tribes, they put them where they're supposed to be so that they can appoint Levite priests around them. So that each tribe has a priest, and each, each priest has people they can go to, so each tribe knows how to worship. And so these numbers begin to organize Israel into a worshiping people uh, that, that not just one person leads, but a bunch of people leads. And then his presence. God prepares them with his presence. Uh, this is 9, 15 through 17 of Numbers. On, that, on the day the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the, test, the tent of testimony. And at the evening, it was over the tabernacle like a presence of fire until the morning. So it was always. The cloud covered it by day and the, day and the appearance of fire by night. And whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, 
After that, the people of Israel set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel camped. And so he's got them ready to go in their priesthood. He's got them to get ready to go in their purity. He says, listen, wherever you go, I'm gonna go. So just follow the cloud. When it stops, set up camp, put the tabernacle there, put the tribes that way, put the tribes that way, put the tabernacle, and then the Levite priest right around there in the center. This is what you'll do. If you just do this, if you just follow me, I'll lead you that way. When it moved, when the cloud moved, they moved. When it stopped, they stopped. God saw fit to reveal himself to the Israelites in clear, visible ways. They didn't yet have the Bible. They didn't yet have years of God's faithfulness to remember. They didn't yet have church history to rely on and systematic theologies and and years of, uh, oh, and the internet. They didn't know who God was. They had no, no history. They just had this one year. And so God was stoking the flames of faith, stoking the flames of obedience through these miraculous moments. His presence, in other words, was meant to kindle deep faith. That these moments of miracles were meant to seed in him, seed in Israel, a deep dependence that when they weren't there or when they struggled with something large, they knew they could trust him. I wanna just talk a little bit about a takeaway for us this morning And it says, God still prepares his people for his work. If you're like me, you read that list and it's like, if I could see a little bit of an exodus, I'd have more faith. If I could just see a a cloud move, I'd have more faith. If I could just see, you know, God do this. If I could just see this, if I could, like, here's the problem with that. Jesus rebuked the Jews for that. They had, Jesus just fed the 5,000 and the Jews followed him and said, hey, show us another sign. He says, you unbelieving generation." Don't you see what this is meant to point to? And yet God does prepare us today. Three ways God prepares us really quickly. The gospel that reminds us that we were created in his image, that sin broke fellowship with him and the only way that our sin could be paid for was by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection. He trains us through that knowledge which changes us. He trains us through the word of God. And when you think about the Bible, 66 books written by a bunch of different people over thousands of years. The fact that we have it and have had it the way we've had it for a long time is remarkable. That it hasn't really changed, that there's been broad agreement about what's supposed to be in there and that translations on the whole, on the whole agree. Like when you think about this, you realize like these are the words of God, that this is a miracle that we have the very words of God in our hands. And so we say, man, in 2023, I wanna hear from the Lord. Open your word, like open the Bible. We don't have to wonder how God is. We don't have to wonder about his character. We don't have to wonder what he wants to do with us and through us. I only say that to say this, you will not grow deeply without reading deeply this year. You will not know God deeply without reading deeply this year. You will not grow in biblical wisdom without reading deeply. If you want to learn how to discern what is right and wrong and discern God's wisdom, it will not come uh, through experience outside of God's word that we need to immerse ourselves deeply in this gift that is the word of God. Finally, we have the Holy Spirit. Not finally, but we have God dwelling within us. There's a real sense in which we have a leg up on the Israelites because God dwelt in the middle of their camp. The scripture says the Holy Spirit dwells within us. 
that the Holy Spirit illuminates scripture. It helps point us to Jesus. It helps correct us. It helps empower our ministry that we have in the absence of miraculous uh, uh, things happening and, and, and fire pillars from the sky leading us. We have the Holy Spirit who, when we read the word of God, when we obey, when we move towards obedience, he empowers that. He shows us who he is. Like we have the third member of the Trinity, the Godhead dwelling within us. We are in a much better spot than the Israelites are. Like it's not even close. Before, uh, before the service here, uh, I was talking to a guy and he was just mentioning how he's not like an evangelist. It's not really his shtick. And if you know him, you really don't want him to be an evangelist. Good. He'd say that. He actually did say that. But he was going over to a friend's house for Christmas. And he's just, he's apropos of nothing. Just prayed, God, would you give me an opportunity to share with you, share you with these people? They're not believers. This is a normal thing to do on Christmas. He gets there. He goes, I can't believe it. I walked in that door and sat down. You know what we started talking about? Church. They went to church. I know they go to church. They hate church. She had a bad experience at church. They were really mean to her. And we sat for two hours and talked about Jesus and the church. And then he texted me and he shows me the text message. And he says, look, look the text message. It says, like, it was fun to talk with someone who doesn't, who's not mean to me, which is basically the upshot of the text. Like, Here's this guy who thinks he's not qualified, who thinks he's not able, who put himself in a position, who God gave him exactly what he needed, not so he could do it without him, who gave him exactly what he needed, but not enough so he didn't need God. And here's this moment that God is equipping and still moving us for the work of ministry, for the work of ministering to those who are near to us but far from the Lord. Anyway, every Christian today is more prepared for ministry than Israel was. Every Christian today has more access to biblical truth than Israel did. Every Christian today has more reason for deeper faith than Israel did. Israel had pillars of clouds, fire, and manna. Great reasons for trust. But this is not how the story ends or continues in the book of Numbers. Let's go to uh, the second frame or the second kind of picture as God's people begin to complain. God prepares them. He gives them uh, instruction on purity. He gives them the priesthood and he gives them his presence. These things that they're gonna need, it's almost like a boot camp uh, in the desert to prepare them for, uh, for the conquest that's gonna come. And they begin to, complain, begin to complain. And remember, like these are the people who've been led by God, who've seen everything he's done. They're, they're, he's keeping his promise to them. He continues to have manna fall from the sky. Like they see... And, and experience God's presence in miraculous ways every day. Verse 1 of chapter 11 of the book of Numbers. And the people complained in their hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outlying parts of the camp. General misfortune that begins to surface in Israel grumbling about the misfortune. Well, as the reader, you're supposed to ask yourself the question, what misfortune is there? And the answer is, none really. Now look, they're in the desert. I'm not saying life is easy. And they have to keep moving from place to place. They gotta keep encamping. But they're no longer in Pharaoh's grasp. They're no longer slaves. They have a future. God has headed them towards the promised land. What misfortune do they have? Maybe it's just general discomfort. And, and, and slavery was bad, obviously. Uh, but they had job security, I guess. Like, like you just begin to, like, what, what really, like, why is this worse? Like, what in their life is worse in God's providence and God's provision than under Pharaoh's thumb? Their hearts are so hard that they'd rather be back 
in Egypt. And so they begin to complain about their misfortune. They begin to complain about their food. They begin to complain about their leaders. And then they can begin to complain about giants. That last one we get, like that one would make a lot of sense to us. Giants, scary. I want to talk about the food here. Verse four, can't make this up. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. That is a, a group of people had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again. And they said, oh, that we had meat to eat. This is good. This is good. It gets better. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt. Uh-oh. That cost nothing. Uh-oh. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic, all the flavor we had. It was free. But we were slaves. But now that our strength is dried up and there is nothing to eat but all of this manna, they want quail. They want more than quail. They want meat. They want flavor and spice and variety. And, and they look back and say, man, at least that was free in, in, in Egypt. It was free to us. Like, what revisionist history? Like, this is absurd, right? They're in the desert. Like, man, it was awesome when our crops were free. They don't remember the part where Pharaoh was like, make bricks without straw and how hard that was. Like, this is really selective memory. Like there is something deep within the core of their discontentment, of their heart, that leads them to look back and say, man, I wish I was under the slave driver because at least I got leeks. That was great for me. We could have meat and the fish was great. It's almost like if you rephrase the end of verse six and, and verse six ended differently, and, but now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all, but all of this evidence of God's provision to look at. Like that's what they're saying. All right, they're saying, all we have is this manna that has miraculously fallen from heaven and done so on schedule for like a year. That's all we've got. This is why this is such an absurd thing. You realize, as you begin to tease this apart, what they're really saying is what God has given us is, not enough, is no longer enough. Well, one of my favorite books to read my kids, if you're a mom or a dad, is uh, If You Give a Mouse a Cookie. It's a cute little book, Right? And it starts with this boy, and he's got a mouse, and, uh, and it kind of goes like this. If you give a mouse a cookie, he'll want, his, his mouth will be dry. He'll want something to drink. And so if you, if you give a mouse milk to drink, he's going to get tired. He's going to have a place to sleep. But if you give a mouse a place to sleep, he's going to be comfortable. But if you want it to be comfortable, then you've got to find him a bed. And then if you can find a bed, he needs a blanket. And then if he sleeps, he's going to need an alarm clock. And it just goes on and on and on, all from a cookie. And this is what we're experiencing here with the Israelites, that whatever God is giving them isn't enough. That there is some deep fractured faith and discontentment with all they've seen, that what, what God is giving them, this, this manna from heaven, that is literally from heaven, from, from God, from the storehouses, from the bakery in heaven, falling down isn't enough. This thing that they see of God's providence, God's pro, uh, provision for them is not enough. Their eyes, seeing was not believing, that their eyes were never satiated that it was never enough, that their seeing did not lead to believing. Then they were angry at leadership. Numbers 12, one through two, Miriam and Aaron, that is Moses' brother and sister, spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said to him, has the Lord indeed only spoken through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. And so Miriam, uh, Miriam and Aaron over there, basically jealous that, they, that Moses is getting all the publicity, getting all, of the, all the time with God, and he speaks to, and then God says, I speak clearly to, to, to Moses, but I don't speak clearly to everyone else, and so how could you speak against him? They begin to have these complaints uh, against, against Moses. 
But it's interesting, at this point, like, you know how God has dealt with the mis- their complaining? Remember at the very beginning where they complained about misfortune? God said, you know what? Like, I'm going to put a stop to that. I'm going to burn part of your camp. And so he burns part of their camp, and the people come and say, hey, we don't like our camp on fire. Oh, we're really sorry, God, and he puts it out. And then he goes, uh, you want food? I can bring you a ton of meat. And Moses is like, hey, we don't have any livestock. And God says, are my arms too short to do that? And he's like, who do you think I am? You know what he does the next day? He, in the field next to the camp, brings so many quail that it's, that it's three feet high, and the collection was 1.6, me, 1.6 metric tons of meat. And before they could eat it, everyone who wanted to eat meat, all of those, uh, the rabble-rousers who had the craving, were struck dead there. And then there's this leadership thing where Aaron then, uh, Aaron, the Lord removes his presence, so Aaron can't be a priest, and they afflicts Miriam with leprosy, and all of these things happen to illustrate, to illustrate an important point here, that like our rebellion is costly to us, and God is not, God is not soft on sin. God does not, God does not allow enjoyment of sin for us. God did not allow their rebellion to go unaddressed. Which leads us to one of the more interesting stories in the book of Numbers. So we've got all this grumbling, and uh, in the midst of that, they're, they're at a certain point on a map, and, uh, and Moses says, listen, we, we're close to the promised land. We need to send out some scouts. And so they get one scout from each tribe, 12 scouts, and they send them out, send them out for 40 days. And they're there to scout the cities, scout the people, scout the land. Is this land the land that's flowing with milk and honey? And so they go out 40 days, and they come back uh, with a report to Moses and all the assembly of the people. So they're standing there giving this report. Verse 7 of chapter 13 of the book of Numbers says this, And they, the spies, told him, We came to the land with which you sent us, in which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is the fruit. So they're displaying the beautiful grapes and all this. Like, it is, it is exactly what God has said. It's good news. It's a cornucopia of blessing. And you can almost imagine the, the murmuring in the cloud as, as, the, as the spies are, are putting their hunks of grapes grapes and, and other vegetables and the meat from the land. And this is exactly what God has promised. This is it. It flows with milk and honey. And this is great. And, and everyone realizes uh, uh, that, that he's not done talking yet. And so the murmuring comes down, draws down. And verse 28 starts with the word, however, or in some translations, but. This is never a good thing. Blessing, but. The people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw descendants of Anak there. So they say, listen, all of this is really good. Milk and honey, vegetables, great fruit. You guys should enjoy it. But if we go into that land, they're fortified cities. They're big warriors. Also, they're descendants of Anak, who, if you don't know, are, are, are the line that created Goliath in a few years. So it's like Shaquille O'Neal with a machine gun. Like, you're not going to want it. Like, like, you're not coming out. Like, this is what they're saying. This is, this is great over here. It's awesome, but we can't do it. It's humanly impossible. They look at the crowd and say, like, we can't do this. And one of the spies, Caleb, uh, along, uh, he's, he speaks up for he and Joshua. And Caleb says, listen, we can do this. We just got to go up there. And, and, and the rest of the spies say, no, we can't do it. And they begin to raise a fervor so much so that the whole of Israel, all of Israel, all that is there begins to rebel against God. And this is what the spies said to the people. We are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we are. The land, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw are, in, are great of height. 
Numbers chapter 14, verses 2 and 3. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation, this is right, this is all happening in like 10 or 15 minutes, this fervor, this thing is whipping up. And the people say to Moses and Aaron, would that we have died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we have died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? Remember, this, these are the people who saw these great miracles. These are the people who saw the Red Sea parted. And all of a sudden, how quickly they've forgotten in the face of a bad report. From their point, vantage point, God has forgotten them, not provided for them, and he has afflicted them. In other words, like there is some deep discontentment here that is poisoning the well. A real quick takeaway as we think about this, the discontentment is like spiritual poison. Spiritual poison, the more we drink, the more we die. Life truly is full of hardship. It's full of pain. It's full of struggle. Like, and it's not wrong to acknowledge that. Actually, it's foolish and naive to say everything's fine. There are no problems. And we don't believe anyone who says that anyway. Right? My life is great. Don't lie. <laughs> we know it's not. It's okay. Or it's not perfect. What matters is how we deal with disappointment, unmet expectations, seasons of waiting, seasons of sorrow or pain. Like in this, God has not afflicted the Israelites. He's put in front of them a thing that's impossible for them to do. All of the rest of this with the, the discontentment of leadership and food and these other things are all a precursor to this. What will the Israelites do when faced with an insurmountable task? Will they remember who God is? Will they remember his power? Will they walk with him and step in step, arm in arm into the promised land? The answer to that is no, they, they don't have enough faith in their God. They're deeply discontent, deeply angry, deeply bitter. And so we think about discontentment in our own lives with who we are, where we are, what we do, with our friends, our family, all of that. Discontentment is so dangerous. I wanna, I wanna just put up a few things, a few ways we can diagnose this type of discontentment in our hearts. And I wanna say this, like, not all discontentment is the same. Like, people should have a way to complain in a righteous way. They should have a way to lament. They should have a way to talk to authority. They should have a way to address problems that don't lead to this type of poisonous discontent. Discontentment charges God with being unfaithful, that if you, if you are like the Israelites this morning, when you look at your life and, and you look and say, God is the one who's been unfaithful to me, that I am entitled or I should deserve this, and, or he has forgotten me, he has stopped being faithful. Discontentment fosters that type of look of God. Discontentment ultimately distrusts God's heart, that you look up and say, God doesn't actually love me, he's not for me, he doesn't see me, he doesn't provide for me. He doesn't care for me. Discontentment ignores God's provision, uh, that it looks at the manna that God has provided and says, that's not enough. That I wanted something different. I wanted something more. Discontentment shrinks God's power that God's not able to accomplish what he said he's able to accomplish. That who he is isn't true. That the big things that, that are in your life, the big hurts, the big dreams, the big acts of faith God can't do. Discontentment makes God the problem. This is interesting. If you look at discontent and lament, lament is the biblical way to worship in pain and to acknowledge uh, that things are hard, but that God is good. Discontentment says God is the problem. Lament says God is the, the, the solution. He's also, in lament, sometimes the problem. Sometimes God afflicts these things, but in lament, he's always the solution. He's always the faithful one. Persistent discontentment is a sign of spiritual immaturity. 
that we think about what we have and who we are and what we've been given. Persistent discontentment reveals that we're not grateful for the things that we have, that what God gives us is never enough, that, we can't, that God can't be trusted to provide. And what, what it ends up doing, it ends up creating this dependence on God that is always really shallow and really subjective based on what we think we need and what God should do in a situation. It leaves us always wondering and waving, wavering in our life, wondering where the stability and peace should come from. Israel didn't trust God to give them the land. Israel didn't trust God to give them anything, and any, anything he did give them wasn't enough. And so there's one last punishment that was coming for Israel. God punishes his people, chapters 15 through 36. Chapters 15 through 36. And so there's this uprising. And then in chapter 15, in chapter 15, we have God declaring what the punishment will be for his people. Verse 32. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness, until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity 40 years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness, they shall come to find a full end, and there they shall die. He looks at the people of Israel. He looks at the generation who watched the Exodus. He looks at the generation who came out of Egypt, who he did great things for, who he saved, who he set up a relationship with. He looks at them and says, because of your faithlessness, because of your grumbling, because of your inability to, to walk with me, you will wander in the desert for 40 years until every man and woman of this generation falls dead in the wilderness. That the promises that I made to you will go to your next generation, will go to your children, but you will not see the promised land. What an amazing trajectory, tragic trajectory. They were saved. They see all this evidence of God's goodness and faith and mercy, things we would, things we would like, love to see, that kind, of, that kind of power, that kind of movement, that kind of a display of God's, of God's will and, and, and glory. And here they are. They're God's chosen people, and, and he's given them law, and he's given them relationship. And, and not, not months later, they careen off the edge of discontentment and distrust and this generation that God redeemed with his hand will not see the promise that he promised them in Exodus 3. Their kids will because of their faithlessness. The penalty for their sin is death. That seems harsh. I just acknowledge that, right? If it were us, it would seem harsh. From, like, from a vantage point right now, that's not harsh. It's no big deal. That's a whole generation. A bunch of moms and dads, aunts and uncles, grandpas and grandmas, gone. Sin has consequences. God is not happy. God is not pleased when sin is within our hearts, when it's within our camp, within our house. One of the greatest warnings of the book of Numbers is this, that sin has disastrous consequences. Sin has disastrous consequences. And so if we look at the book of Numbers, look, look, if you want to run from God, He'll let you. If you want to rebel against God's design, he'll let you. If you want to delay obedience, he'll let you. If you want to indulge in sin, he'll let you. 
But because he is good and gracious, he'll also allow, he'll also let you feel the sting of death that enters because of your sin. Because he is good and gracious, he'll discipline those he loves. Because he is good and gracious, he won't remove the pain from us. That our sin has disastrous effects, disastrous consequences. In our rebellion, we lose close communion with God. We lose peace, joy, vibrancy. For the Israelites, uh, their, their punishment was wandering in the, in the desert for 40 years. Wandering in the desert, well, a whole generation. Could you imagine being one of those generations? Knowing that you're gonna die and that Israel's not gonna move on until you do. Knowing your days are numbered and you know the days. Imagine the hopelessness. Imagine the ability to say, man, God, I, I want to repent. I want to I move back. I, wanna, I, wa I, I want you to accept me. I want... That's not a possibility for this generation. Those who saw God's movement, those who wouldn't walk in the promised land. For us, it may not be 40 years of wandering and death. It may be aimlessness. It may be a spiritual dryness. It may be persistent joylessness. It may be difficulty trusting God. It may be just a deep feeling of unsettledness or deep satisfaction. It may be, there may be physical ailments that lead to death. Like, like God, God still does these things that our sin causes physical problems. It causes spiritual problems because sin brings death to every part of our life. Every part of our life. God is faithful to his people and allow them to taste the consequences of their sin. I just say this this morning, like if we're looking for like resolutions, like the chief one on our list should be to learn how to hate sin. To learn how to hate it deeply, to fight it. Like I don't care if you go to the gym ever again. I don't, I, I'm, I, you should go to the gym. But like, if we don't know how to fight sin, if we don't know how to hate sin, if we don't know how to rid ourselves of the scourge of the brokenness within us, if we don't know how to empower ourselves to eh, empower ourselves to fight and to hate this thing with God's power and the Holy Spirit, like it doesn't matter how comfortable, how strong, how good we look, how life hacked everything else in our life. It doesn't matter how, how the other parts of our lives have progressed. If we haven't fought sin or are not fighting sin or are making war on sin, like we are losing ground in holiness. The only thing that matters for us the only thing that matters is a relationship with Jesus and the sin that lies in barrier to that. A couple of bright spots in the book of Numbers. Because Numbers is, well, depressing. Y'all came here for good news. It's New Year's Day. Like, what are you doing preaching on, like, punishment? And this is really heavy, Pastor. We're like, okay, good, good. Numbers isn't all that. But it's important, like we can't, we can't skirt over the fact that like God hates sin and then when people don't hate sin, when his people don't hate it, it infects, it infects his relationship with them, it affects the, their unity, it affects all that they are, so much so that the consequences to that of Israel were dire. Like that's part of the lesson here. That like sin cannot be coddled. It must be mortified as John Owen said. Whereas John Piper would pound his fist and say, make war on sin. We cannot coddle the lion in our midst. We must fight it. But this is not the only message of the book of Numbers. Chapter 21 reminds us of God's mercy and begins to set a framework for who God is so the people of Israel begin to understand him. And it's a really strange episode. Like, Israel does its thing again, right? 
They, they, they're out in the wilderness and they go to Moses and say, hey, I wish we were back in Egypt where we had meat and we're with Pharaoh. It's like, bro, don't say the same thing again. Like literally, you see this phrase multiple times in the wandering. And so, uh, and so the people of Israel come to, to Moses and say, hey, we're really angry. We, we should be back in Moses. Our little ones are victims and all this stuff. And so God says, I'm gonna send another curse. And so he does, he sends fiery serpents, right? I don't know what fiery serpents are, but I wanna meet them. Sends these fiery serpents and everyone who's bitten dies. And so the people of Israel, who, who their camp is infested with these serpents, that's terrifying. Come to Moses and say, listen, we, we, we repent. We, 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 we want to trust God. We want to go with God. Will you help God? Will you intercede for us, Moses? And so Moses intercedes. And God says, listen, if the people want relief from this, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pull, and I want you to fashion a bronze, fiery serpent. So become a sculptor, take some bronze, and fashion it into a fiery serpent and put it on a pole. And he told Moses, tell the people this. If you've been bitten by this snake and you look up to the pole, you'll live. That's really strange. That's really strange. Like serpents aren't good news in the Bible. This is weird. But here's what we're meant to take away from this. We're meant to take away from this. Anyone who's been bitten by a snake is condemned to die. There's nothing they can do. God's judgment is upon them for their sin. They've rebelled against God. A snake has bit them. Their sentence is death. The only way they can have healing, salvation, life, is if they turn their eyes to what was a picture of their judgment, a snake. They're to look up symbolically to God at this thing that was an act of judgment, and if they look up towards their own rebellion, if they look up towards what was a symbol of their judgment and trust God for healing, then they are healed. This is why the Apostle John writes this about 1,400 years later, John 3, 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That our salvation only comes from looking at Jesus on the cross and the wrath of God, that is the judgment. We look at the wrath of God poured out on Jesus, the judgment for what we deserve, he bears it. Our only hope is to look at Jesus and say, my hope of salvation, a corrupt as I am, condemned to death, man and woman, child, anyone who doesn't do this, if you believe in Jesus, as he lays on that cross, that picture of judgment, if you believe, you are saved. This prefigures that. This is what the Israelites begin. Jesus, what God is beginning to do is, is to show a picture of what salvation would look like. That if you look up towards what your judgment would be and you trust God, you won't experience that judgment. Eternal life comes. It's just in a bronze snake. Second story that's really interesting. Chapter 22 through 24. It's right after this snake incident. And Israel goes to, goes to settle. And the whole of the story of Numbers has been around uh, the people of Israel. And so they, they encamp around Moab. 
And on the way to Moab, they beat, they beat up the Amorites. And so the king of Moab sees, uh, sees the Israelites there and they're encamped and he gets afraid. And so the story, the story kind of zooms out and comes over to the king of Moab and leaves the people of Israel over here and they're encamped waiting, uh, waiting to attack Moab. And so king, uh, and, and it focuses around two, two people, King Balak of the Moabites and a wicked prophet named Balaam or Balaam, depending on how you want to pronounce it. And, and there's a lot to this. There's a talking donkey in this story, which I'll just leave for you to read later. But like, I want to, I want to get to the point here, what this king does, he goes to the prophet, who is a wicked prophet, and says, listen, here are these people. I'd like, I'd like it to be easier to fight them. Could you call your God and have them put a curse on the people? And so they make a contract and a certain amount of money and all that, and so they put up the altars, and, and Balaam goes multiple times, and multiple times God says, no, I'm not going to curse these people. I haven't cursed them. I'm going to bless them. No, I'm not going to curse them. I'm going to bless them. No, I'm not. And so each time he comes back to the Moabite king, he says, sorry, Yahweh says, he's, he, I can't curse him. You're on your own. And there's this really particular prophecy, really particular prophecy that Balaam uh, gives in Numbers 24, verse 17. This is a prophecy that he tells to the king of Moab. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob, A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab and the skulls of all the people of Sheth. Now, if you're a king and you see he will crush the foreheads of Moab, this is bad news. And so certainly we understand the king understood this in a near near term. We understand uh, that the King David is kind of the near-term fulfillment of this, that, uh, that the King David comes and he crushes Moab and does all of that. And yet this is not all that prophecy reminds us of. The King David's family tree way down with Joseph and Mary produces Jesus who would be a baby who would grow up and live a perfect life, be strung up and hung for all to see and die on the cross and rise from the dead. I say all of this, this is like numbers with all of its judgment and all of its wrath reminds us that God is faithful even when we're not. That even in the midst of when he could have turned away after the Israelites, time after time, he squeezed them and the same thing came out, faithfulness. Squeezed them again, faithlessness. Squeezed them again, faithlessness. Squeezed them again, faithlessness. He could have walked away. You and I would have walked away the first time. But he doesn't. He reminds them of his power, reminds them of his mercy, reminds them of deliverance and points their eyes and their ears and their hearts a future king who is coming. Why is Numbers important? Numbers reminds us that God's faithfulness isn't dependent on our faithfulness to him. His faithfulness to us isn't dependent on our faithfulness to him. When life squeezes us and faithlessness comes out, he is faithful. When life squeezes us and discontentment streams out, he is faithful. When life squeezes us and distrust and bitterness and anger all squeeze out, He is faithful. 2 Timothy 2.13 says this. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. In other words, get this. His character will not allow him to not be faithful to us. It is impossible for him to be faithless to you. That would breach his character. He'd cease to be God. That part of who he is, he has decided to love you and as part of that covenant, the guy has character. There will never be a moment in your life where he doesn't love you, pursue you, is not, is not caring for you, is not loving you, is not faithful to you. That all of his promises are always true to you in Jesus Christ for all of eternity, starting now. And so what should you take into the new year? Resolutions and all that. I got one you should do every day this year. Confess your sins repent and follow Jesus. 
of the story of Numbers is true. We don't know what 2023 holds for us. It feels like every year is more and more of a crapshoot since 2020. I just don't know. <laughs> but here's what we do know. We do know that life's going to squeeze us at some point. We do know at some point we're going to doubt, we're going to be bittered, we're going to be discontented. So we confess and repent and we find forgiveness. We look to the cross. We look to the author and perfecter of our faith. Remind ourselves that there is no goodness in us that should condemn us or commend us, but it's Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection that makes us sons and daughters of Jesus Christ, sons and daughters of God for all eternity. So turn your eyes to the cross, confess and repent. If you do these two things, no matter what happens in 2023, you'll find a merciful and gracious God waiting to embrace you, forgive you, and change you. Let's pray. God, we are grateful that you save us. And in that salvation, God, you recognize, you, you've purchased us, you know us, you know all of, our, all of our thoughts, all of our broken ways, you know how we'll continue to sin. And yet you purchased us and you don't get regret or remorse about that, but that you allow us the, the glory and the joy of walking with you and growing in our faithfulness. And so we know that when we are faithless, you are faithful. And so we, we enter a new year knowing that since time began, you have never stopping faithful. And you're not gonna start this year. You're not gonna start today. You're not gonna start this month because you can't. And so we are grateful that we are yours, yours forever. Watch over us, bless us. God, energize us for your mission that we might seek Preach the gospel that you may save the lost, those who are near to us but far from you. God, for your glory and our joy. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon podcast from Church of the Gates. For more information about our church or to connect with us about what you've just heard, please visit churchinmissoula.com.